Warning to any listeners, this episode will include descriptions that some people may find distressing. Oh, please, how can I help? Hello there. My partner has been missing since Monday. Uh, what's your partner's name? Helen Bailey. This week, we'll be looking at how a celebrated children's author was subjected to a series of calculated lies and drugging at the hands of the man she loved. A man who would eventually kill her to get his hands on a near £4 million fortune. In a crime described as one of the most heinous the UK authorities have seen in recent times. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of Unbelievable a brand new true crime podcast that will introduce you week by week to another horrific, often baffling, but always unbelievable story of murder and deceit. On the afternoon of April 11th, 2016, Helen Bailey was walking her miniature dachshund, Boris, near her home in Hertfordshire, to the north of Greater London. This would be the last time Helen and her beloved dog were seen alive. Described by her family as witty and talented, Helen Bailey enjoyed life as a successful children's author, writing a total of 22 books, amongst those the popular Electra Brown series. But it wasn't until the death of her first husband, John Seinfeld, that Helen would gain a wider readership. Helen and John were together 22 years and married for 15 when they flew to Barbados in 2011 on a much-needed breakaway. While there, John got caught up in a rip current swimming in the sea and sadly drowned. The tragic accident meant that Helen, in her own words, was a wife at breakfast but a widow by lunch. World turned upside down, Helen clung to her writing, the thing she knew best to cope with her grief, and she started penning her emotions on a blog called Planet Grief. Her posts were sometimes humorous, sometimes deeply sad, as she wrote down her journey trying to navigate life as a new widow. It struck a chord with people across the world who had experienced loss, and her thoughts were eventually published in a book titled When Bad Things Happen in Good Bikinis. Helen's loneliness led her to seek solace in those she communicated with online, which is where she eventually met another widower she hoped would become her life partner. In his 50s, Ian Stewart was a software engineer and father of two, a widower himself. In 2010, his first wife unexpectedly collapsed in their garden and died. Joining a bereavement chat room, Stewart set out to woo Helen in what was labelled a love-bombing offensive earning her trust through demonstrations of attention and affection. Fast forward five years later, and Helen was excitedly making arrangements for the pair's wedding. Meanwhile, Stuart was making his own more sinister plans. To kill her, hide her body, and explain her disappearance as a case of a woman running away from a life she could no longer cope with. What happened next only came out during the trial, when Stuart denied the murder of his fiancée, 
Stewart had secretly started drugging Helen in the months leading up to her death. He did this by giving her an increasing dosage of sleeping medication, but we still don't know how he managed to get Helen to unknowingly take the drugs. Helen's mother, Eileen, became more and more worried about her daughter's health and described later how her daughter had seemed unusually spaced out. Her concern peaked after Helen left Boris behind on a beach one day. And on another occasion, Helen had walked out of a supermarket still holding unscanned items. Eileen wasn't the only one who'd noticed this change in behaviour. Helen herself struggled to understand her constant tiredness, asking her mother one day, why do I keep falling asleep? Helen's mum was one of the only people to have doubts about Stuart from the very beginning. Through his master manipulation and lies, he was able to mask his true character from others. But Mrs. Bailey had doubts about his intentions with her daughter. Perhaps it was mother's intuition, but unfortunately for her, she was right. On the morning of the 11th of April, Stuart suffocated Helen while she was in one of her drug-induced sleeps. Next, he turned on Boris, the innocent little sausage dog that Helen never went anywhere without. Stuart knew that if his story was going to be believed, he could not risk leaving him alive. Having executed the cold-blooded murder, he then dragged Helen's body to a cesspit that lay beneath the garage. Stuart then calmly went about the rest of his day, having left the woman he betrayed and her dog in the filth beneath the house. Firstly, he went to Basingbourne doctor surgery to have the dressing changed on a wound from a bowel surgery he had in March. He then went to Royston Waste Recycling Centre to dispose of a duvet, which the prosecution said he used to move Helen's body from the house to the cesspit, but Stuart claimed he soiled it while suffering his bowel problems. He also went to drop off papers at Helen's solicitors to regress with the sale of a flat she owned. He then went to watch his son play a game of bowls in Cambridge, before returning home and buying a Chinese takeaway for them both. It was a further four days before he decided to ring the police about his fiancée's disappearance. Making a call to the non-emergency 101 number, he claimed Helen had left a note saying she needed space and had gone to their cottage in Broadstairs, near Margate. So, so she's gone away, was that for work business, sorry? No, no, she's, she's self-employed, so she works from home. So she, no, she left a note. She said, she said in the note something like, I need space and time alone. I'm going to Broadstairs. Please don't contact me in any way. But in Broadstairs, she's got, we've got a, a cottage down there. But we, people have been down there with neighbours and she hasn't, she's not there. Hasn't been there either. So Broadstairs, where is Broadstairs? On the, near, near Margate. And her phone is just dead. It's not well, I say dead. Mm-hmm. It, just, it just doesn't ring. Just goes straight to the answer machine. His conversation with the call handler continued as she took down more information. He even went on to explain how he met Helen. However, he couldn't remember simpler details like her eye colour and date of birth. Uh, what's your partner's name? Helen Bailey. Helen Bailey. Is that B-A-Y-L-E-Y? No, B-A-I-L-E-Y. And what's her date of birth? Oh, crikey. God, she, she found me there. 22nd. Right, just let me double check. One second. Oh, God. Sorry. Can you still hear me? I can still hear you, yep. I'm sorry, I'm just double checking. As you asked that, it just went straight out of my head. Ah, no problem. Twenty second of August, nineteen sixty four. 
Officers from Hertfordshire's major crime unit started to suspect Stuart early on. He was the last to see Helen alive and had stood to gain a lot from her death, namely her fortune, which he had become sole heir of after she changed her will. Although they treated him fairly as a bereaved widow, his lack of recollection of the day she went missing cemented their theory that he was involved somehow. We'd like you to take you through what happened that day. This is where I can't remember very well. I'll tell you what I can remember, and what some of what I can remember is maybe what I've said since and when I've looked in the diary, things like that. Okay. Just that day. Start with that day. If that, if you're comfortable starting with that day, that's the day that we would like to concentrate on for as long as you're comfortable with that. Well, I remember bits of it. But the first day I remember is we loaded the car, or had loaded my car, with an old juve and some boxes ready to take to the dump. Then, then she was in her office for a while. I went back to bed for a while, so I was tired and my wounds did hurt. Then she went out in the car just to get some milk or something, milk and bits, but came back almost instantly. I was upset because something had happened. She said, I'm never going to drive again. Police initially questioned Stuart in his home. The recording shows Stuart sat in his living room, slumped in a leather armchair, his head resting on his left hand as he fiddles with his glasses in the other. He seems to grow increasingly uncomfortable and eventually asks to terminate the interview. I'm really aware this is from my senior point and I need to rest. This is from my senior point, I do need to rest. I'm very aware of that because I do, my mindset is well controlled. But if I do something stupid, I get really tired, okay. then I, I can become very ill. So I, I do try and avoid that. So for basis. medical health reasons, you're saying that you know your, your condition that you have, which is, say again? My senior gravis. My senior gravis. And obviously you've recently had an operation on the stomach. And that's not helping. And that's not helping. Mm-hmm. So you're saying that essentially if you get too tired and you're too stressed, it's going to make your health deteriorate and... I know, but you. The, I've been silly in the past and it has to. Okay. Has done, I mean. We need to end it now. By the 11th of July, police believed they had enough evidence to arrest Stuart and search his home for clues. In the police interviews which followed, he maintained near-absolute silence, refusing to answer most of the questions. Dermot reports are missing for four days. The following day, you go to Broadstairs, 
I don't know why. Why did you go there? Did you see Helen on the 16th? Because according to the technical information we've got, her phone is in Broadstairs. And you're in Broadstairs. Was Helen there? She wasn't, was she? Or was she? You tell me. Did you kill Helen Bailey? Did you intend to kill her? Or was this an accident? What happened? So began a search of the million-pound home, but they would not find Helen until some days later. He'd kept a close eye on the police search, asking questions about where they were going and why. Stuart had moved a jeep from his driveway and parked it over the cesspit's hatch. Until the 15th of July, when the car was eventually moved, he managed to divert police attention from the garage to another cesspit located on the grounds. Sergeant Stephen Oliphant was the first to start excavating the hole. The policeman found a hard crust of human sewage around six to nine inches deep on the surface of the cesspit. A drainage specialist handed the officer a garden hoe and told him to break the crust of the surface. Sergeant Oliphant later recounted what happened next. He said, I started prodding and poking the crust and after a while, a crack started to form. I was prodding with this garden hoe and I realised I was hitting a different object to the crust. It was slightly softer and spongier. I pushed the object further into the water and I realised at this point in time, it was an arm to a body. Once I moved the crust away, a body came to the surface and I was able to confirm it was a full body and it was intact. Helen was found fully clothed, except for her bare feet, and she was beside her dachshund Boris. After this gruesome discovery of Helen, who had been submerged in a pit beneath her mansion all along, the police hoped Stuart would finally admit to the murder. But he continued to deny his role in her death. He later created an extraordinary story about two men called Nick and Joe, supposed to be friends of Helen's late husband, who had kidnapped Helen and blackmailed him for £500,000, and threatened him and his sons. While given evidence in the trial, he told how the mystery kidnappers killed Helen and hid her body under the garage of her own home. The man Helen had once described as a gorgeous, grey-haired widower appeared in court thinner and often unwell. His beard shaved revealed a large scar across his right cheek. Appearing to be able to cry on cue, his emotional testimony evoked gasps and cries from the courtroom as he told his own version of events a version which the jury found to be a complete fabrication. His adult sons, Jamie and Oliver, who had lived with him and Helen in their Royston home, were at the trial most days. They sat with Helen's brother, John Bailey, and other friends of Helen's, and journalists commented on the solidarity between the families throughout the process. There seemed to be a sense that they had all been hurt equally by Ian Stewart's actions. The court heard how Stewart had stood to gain around £1.8 million from Helen's investment portfolio, plus the value of their home in Royston and their coastal cottage. Bank records also showed how just hours after the murder, Stewart had illicitly boosted a standing order to himself from her account, earning him an extra £12,000 over three months. All the while, he played the part of a heartbroken widow, crushed by his bride-to-be's abandonment. 
After a seven-week trial, a jury took only six hours to unanimously find Stewart guilty of all the charges. Judge Andrew Bright sentenced Stewart to life with a minimum term of 34 years. Although Stewart refused to attend the hearing, Judge Bright said, I'm firmly of the view that you currently pose a real danger to women with whom you form a relationship. Whilst we will never know whether you may have had some additional motive for killing the woman who loved you and wanted to be your wife, I am in no doubt this is a clear case of a murder done in expectation of gain, with aggravating features which make it difficult to imagine a more heinous crime. The papers reported how Stuart was a sinister and greedy man who had spent months poisoning his bride-to-be with prescription sedatives before smothering her all in a plot to get his hands on her money. After the trial, police revealed they were now looking into the death of Stuart's former wife, Diane. Diane had died suddenly on the 25th of June, 2010. And although an inquest found the cause to be an epileptic fit, her family have always harboured concerns about her death. In August 2018, police arrested Stuart over his first wife's death. He was questioned on suspicion of murder and released under investigation. This was a, immediately apparent this was a very shocking crime. When the body of Helen Bailey was discovered on the 15th of July, the police approached the Crown Prosecution Service for charging advice. There was only one real candidate for this very serious crime, namely Ian Stewart, and I advised accordingly that he be charged with murder and other related offences. It, it was shocking also in the sense that it was planned and the administration of the Zopiclone sleeping drug in the, the months leading up to the murder uh, was also a striking feature. Many murders are done in the heat of the moment. This was unusual in that it was premeditated and coldly executed. Um, that gives you a flavour of, of the character of Ian Stewart. I've never encountered that. The administration of drugs you often get in relation to fatalities or overdoses where one drug user has administered an overdose of heroin to another drug user, but I've never known it um, be used as a method to make render someone unconscious so that the act of the actual murder is, is rendered much easier. Ian Stewart, who was an arch deceiver, diverted police attention away from that by parking a vehicle over the pit and also by directing them to the secondary cesspit. He made her believe that he was the needy one in the relationship and was financially vulnerable, which of course he wasn't. And there will be a financial inquiry to ensure that Ian Stewart does not profit in any way from his crimes. This was a man who could hide his feelings, if indeed he has many feelings. In order to murder someone as a cold-blooded plan, it is exceptional. I mean, he will receive a significant sentence for his crime, and he's 56 and not in particularly good health. No, I doubt very much he'll be released. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unbelievable. Please take a second to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe, share with your friends and follow us on social media. The links are in the description. Join me next week when I will have another unbelievable story to tell you. Until then, goodbye.